I've been thinking a lot about where I grew up and how that environment influenced some of the books that I'm writing right now. And I talk a lot about this place that I discovered it was an abandoned barn. Grown-ups didn't know about it or go there because you had to troop through woods and fields to get there. And I believe it had been burned down and long, long ago. And we loved that place. Whatever we wanted to play and whenever we wanted a place that felt like a real, I don't know, some kind of a structure that would support and protect us and keep the grown-ups away. That was our place. So that was very important to me. Children thrive in secret places. Author Sarah Pennypacker says such refuges stay with us long into adulthood. I actually remembered a second sort of secret place. It had a little bit of a garden theme to it, which was we had found an abandoned truck. And now when I was a kid, an abandoned truck of this age, this was a really old truck, so old that the seats and the dashboard and everything inside the cab was made of real material, not pleather and vinyl and metal. So moss and other plants grew on top of it and inside it. So the inside of the cab was, it seemed as if to us, it was made of green velvet. I mean, a green velvet steering wheel, and you're sitting on a green velvet throne. You know, they had cab seats then, bench seats. Man, we love that place. I'm Lindsay Jacobson. And this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. And if you haven't already guessed, this episode, we're going to talk about The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. It's a story about a couple of kids who discover an abandoned, locked-away garden, and they bring it back to life. The garden becomes a safe place where the children also figure out who they are as people. Sarah Pennypacker, who wrote Pax and the new novel Here in the Real World, says her own secret places in the woods, far from adults, were just like those in Francis's book. When I think about the secret garden, I think that's its strongest appeal. The secret place that had a lot of nature in it felt protective, felt your own. What a beautiful thing. We'll also talk with Katherine Patterson, the author of the Newbery Medal-winning book, Bridge to Terabithia. She loves The Secret Garden. It's always been with me, always been a part of me. It's influenced the books that I write. Yes, it's been a big, big part of my last 80 years. I'm very grateful to it. Let's take a quick break. We here at Remember Reading just wanted to take a moment to extend our gratitude to all of you out there for your love of the podcast. Your reviews and your ratings, they mean so much to us. They help listeners find the show every day. Here's one from someone named Kendall. Everyone must listen. I recommend this podcast to everyone I know. It's a soothing listen involving the books of our childhoods. Thank you so much, Kendall. We really love our listeners and look forward to hearing your feedback. And if you haven't done so already, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts. We may feature you in the next newsletter or the next episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. Frances Hodgson Burnett is the author of The Secret Garden. Frances was born in England in 1849. When she was a teenager, her family moved to Tennessee where she started publishing stories to support herself. 
She was pretty prolific. The Secret Garden was first published as a magazine serial and then came out as a book in 1911. And it was her 28th published work. The book is about a girl named Mary Lennox, who, when the book opens, lives in India. Mary's a very sullen child, neglected by her parents. And the servants, they fear her because she's such a brat. Let's listen to the audiobook. She had a little thin face and a little thin body, thin light hair and a sour expression. Her hair was yellow and her face was yellow because she had been born in India and had always been ill in one way or another. Her father had held a position under the English government and had always been busy and ill himself. And her mother had been a great beauty who had cared only to go to parties and amuse herself with gay people. Then... Her parents both die of cholera and so do most of the servants. This is Catherine Patterson. And so she is sent to live with an uncle that she's never met at a place called Misselthwaite Manor, which is in Yorkshire, in England. Mary is not really given much to do at Misselthwaite. She just kind of wanders the grounds. And at one point, she meets a bird, specifically a robin. Mistress Mary went a step nearer to the robin and looked at him very hard. I'm lonely, she said. She had not known before that this was one of the things which made her feel sour and cross. She seemed to find it out when the robin looked at her and she looked at the robin. She starts to think that maybe she's not so sullen and contrary by nature. Slowly, she befriends the maid, Martha, and eventually strikes up a friendship with Martha's brother, Dickon, too. With their urgings, she starts to spend more time outside. There, she meets the grumpy groundskeeper and starts to develop a real connection with this robin. So now she's amazed that she has all these friends, which she never had before. This really resonated with Catherine when she read the book as a child, because Catherine, she had been born in China, and she moved to the U.S. as a little girl. It was just a totally magical book for me, because I identified completely with Mary Lennox, because I was a child who had been born in another country and was suddenly transformed into a place where everybody thought I was weird. And I also had a terrible temper as a little girl. Unlike Mary... Catherine had her parents and her siblings, and she didn't live in a gloomy manner. But I was feeling very much like an outsider and living in, in the wrong place in the wrong time. It helped me through a long period of time when I had come to the United States and had no friends. You know, all the friends I had were in books. So to find a friend that was so much like me was very important to me during that time. In the book... Mary learns that somewhere on the Mistlethwaite grounds, there's a garden that's been locked up for a decade. Even the key to it has been buried. And the robin sort of helps her unbury the old key. And then it's a while before she ever tries to find the, the door. And the robin helps her find the door and the key fits and she goes in. And then there's this magical scene where she sees the overgrown roses and she knows she's found a really amazing place. It was the sweetest, most mysterious 
dearest looking place anyone could imagine. The high walls which shut it in were covered with the leafless stems of climbing roses, which were so thick that they were matted together. There are roses everywhere. There were numbers of standard roses which had so spread their branches that they were like little trees. There were other trees in the garden, and one of the things which made the place look strangest and loveliest was that climbing roses had run all over them and swung down long tendrils which made light swaying curtains, and here and there they had caught at each other or at a far-reaching branch and had crept from one tree to another and made lovely bridges of themselves. It turns out that, as an adult, author Frances Hodgson Burnett moved back to England. She lived in a mansion with extensive walled gardens. And just like a robin helps her heroine find a garden, a robin led Frances to an ivy-covered wall of an abandoned garden in her new home. Over time, she restored the grounds, planting hundreds of flowers and a rose walkway. It's no wonder she could capture what it felt like to discover such a place. Just listen. There were neither leaves nor roses on them now, and Mary did not know whether they were dead or alive. But their thin grey or brown branches and sprays looked like a sort of hazy mantle spreading over everything, walls and trees and even brown grass where they had fallen from their fastenings and run along the ground. It was this hazy tangle from tree to tree which made it all look so mysterious. Mary had thought it must be different from other gardens which had not been left all by themselves so long, and indeed it was different from any other place she had ever seen in her life. Sarah Pennypacker already had her own secret places by the time she read this passage in The Secret Garden. Her places were full of nature, too. In fact, she was a bit obsessive. I mean, I spent a great many, over years trying to build a way that would allow me to see under this stream. I would take boxes and try and glue glass in them and just everything. That's how deeply I wanted to be in a secret place and be observant of all the nature. She thinks nature is a key factor for kids to find magic in a secret place. Or at least it was for her as a child. There's something prized about being accepted by a wild animal, and maybe by nature itself. Something about it felt like this is a great honor if a bird decides you're safe enough that it will come near you. That's a tremendous honor. I used to wish when I was out in nature that the animals would understand that I was, I was okay to be trusted. And Frances Hodgson Burnett has a beautiful way of writing not just about nature, but how nature affects her characters. Take this passage, for example. In the book, Mary starts to visit the garden daily. She doesn't tell anyone about it, except her new friend, Dickon. Together, Mary and Dickon work to bring the garden back to life. They ran from one part of the garden to another and found so many wonders that they were obliged to remind themselves that they must whisper or speak low. He showed her swelling leaf buds on rose branches which had seemed dead. He showed her 10,000 new green points pushing through the mold. 
They put their eager young noses close to the earth and sniffed its warmed springtime breathing. They dug and pulled and laughed low with rapture until Mistress Mary's hair was as tumbled as Dickens and her cheeks were almost as poppy red as his. Not too long after, Mary discovers another secret. After hearing cries coming from somewhere inside the house, she finally figures out what they are. It's her cousin Colin, who, like the garden, has been locked away in his room for 10 years. It turns out the garden had been Colin's mother's. And Colin's mother, she died in childbirth. Colin's father, in his grief, couldn't stand to look at the garden or the boy and left them both to wither. Author Francis Hodgson Burnett's own son died very young, at 16, from tuberculosis. Some readers have wondered whether Colin is based on Francis' son. In the book, Colin is very sick. Or at least he thinks he is. Until Mary brings him to the garden, too. He looked so strange and different because a pink glow of color had actually crept all over him. Ivory face and neck and hands and all. I shall get well. I shall get well, he cried out. Mary, Dickon, I shall get well, and I shall live forever and ever and ever. This is what the book is really about. How a secret garden opens the eyes of two lonely, sullen children to the wonders of the world. Here's Catherine Patterson again. It really is the healing quality of nature, of being in nature. And, uh, you know, the robin is the first sign that the nature is on the side of people here. And uh, and then she goes into the garden and she thinks she's healing the garden (laughs) because she wants to restore it and all the beautiful roses to what they once were when they looked like they're dead and they certainly have no leaves and no blossoms when she first meets the garden. And she thinks she's brought the garden back to life, but really it's the garden that brings her to a full and happy life and brings certainly brings Colin healing and happiness. The garden is also the backdrop for blossoming friendships between Mary, Colin, Dickon, and the animals who take them in. The secret garden is timeless. It covers enduring themes like the healing beauty of nature and, of course, friendship. On the other hand, the way it talks about race, class, and colonialism is definitely dated. That's something Katherine Patterson thought about when she read the book to her kids. You know, I was so worried because I had loved it so much as a child when I decided to read it to my own four children because I was afraid they would be put off by the Victorian prejudices. But her kids ultimately embraced the beauty in the story. They loved it. And Catherine never stopped loving it either. She was still thinking about The Secret Garden when she wrote her book, Bridge to Terabithia. We previously did a whole other Remember Reading episode about that book. So if you haven't heard it yet, I recommend you go back and listen to it after this one. Bridge to Terabithia is about a boy named Jesse Ahrens 
and a girl named Leslie Burke, who create their own kingdom in the woods by their houses. They call it Terabithia. Like the Secret Garden, Catherine Patterson's Terabithia helps children see the beauty that's all around them, even the beauty that's not visible to the eye. In Terabithia, it's very clear that the magic is in the imagination of the children, not in the actual setting. They're not walking through a wardrobe to get to Terabithia. They're walking through their imaginations to get to Terabithia. And the same is pretty much true of the Secret Garden. It's not that once they walk through that door, they're in a magic kingdom. It becomes magic because it's a place of wonder for them. And much like the secret place in Francis's book, Terabithia is a backdrop for the children to grow, even in the face of tragedy. Catherine didn't know that when she started writing her book. She only understood it through the writing process. I wrote the book because my son's best friend, who was a girl, was struck and killed by lightning. And it was such a horrible, senseless death, this beautiful child, uh, that I began to write a story just to try to make sense out of something that was senseless. And it was so painful that when I got to the chapter, that, which I knew that Leslie Burke was going to die, I stopped writing because I couldn't bear to let her die. And a friend suggested she wasn't just afraid to face Leslie Burke's death, but her own mortality. Because Catherine had had cancer, too. And so I thought, well, I've got to face my own death because who knows how much time I have. She finished the story and sent the book off to her editor. And the question that Virginia Buckley, who was my editor for four years, asked me when she read that really painful well, it was just a cry of pain. It wasn't a real book. Was, the first question she asked me was, is this book about friendship or is this book about death? And I had thought up until that moment it was a book about death. But as soon as she asked me that question, I thought, oh, it's a book about friendship. And she said, well, I, I thought it, so, so you need to go back and write it that way. Catherine did rewrite it that way. More than anything else, the final version is a tender ode to friendship. Sarah Pennypacker read The Secret Garden as a child, too. It was a book that made her feel comfortable. Some books made me feel too tense. There were too much energy, too much treasure island, too much danger, that kind of thing. And this book didn't. I felt pretty safe with whatever was going to happen because it was something like a robin hopped a little closer or, you know, a little sprout grew another quarter of an inch. And I felt I can handle that. I liked creeping slowly through that. Sarah was very shy and self-conscious about it. But the book and its admiration for secret places, which... Sarah also loved, really helped. The feeling it gave me was of acceptance because by then, I know I would have read it between 9 and 12. So by then, I already knew I had a home in secret abandoned places. So there was that sense that's so fabulous when books can do it, which is you are not alone. And this thing you do is story worthy, therefore you're worthy. I remember that feeling of yes. Around the time she read The Secret Garden, 
Sarah got some early encouragement to write. She'd written a story for class and was waiting to get the teacher's notes back. I was so introverted, so shy. It was just painful for me to look at a grown-up, including my own teacher. It was painful. We were all lined up to get our little blue booklets back in which we had written a story and she had commented. So I waited. I wanted my story back. Got up in line. It's my turn. My head is down. My eyes are on my shoes. Put my hand out to where I know that booklet is being offered, right? And I take it, but she won't let me pull it back. I'm tugging and tugging. Something's wrong. She won't give me my booklet. Until finally, I did what she wanted, which is I raised my eyes to look at her. And she said, I want you to remember this moment. You are going to be an author. That premonition obviously came true. Though Sarah didn't actually start writing books until after she had kids. The best times of my motherhood life, I think, were reading time. I couldn't wait. And we did it all throughout the day and as often as we could. The only way I can explain it is I fell in love. I was blown away by how beautiful and important and well-crafted children's books were and how they moved and enraptured my own children. When she started writing, one of her favorite stories from childhood, The Secret Garden, made it into her own books. For example, one of Sarah's most popular novels, Pax, is about a boy named Peter and his fox, Pax. Peter is forced to abandon Pax when war breaks out in his home, and he has to move. For much of the book, Peter and Pax are trying to find their way back to each other. As they work through obstacles, physical and otherwise, they also find new friends, and they have new adventures. Like Mary and Colin in The Secret Garden, Peter and Pax rediscover themselves after being neglected by Peter's father. They find love in an imperfect world, and they make a new version of home for themselves. Sarah's new book is called Here in the Real World. It came to her while she was touring for Pax. When I was out talking to kids about Pax, I was so struck by how they always would talk about the problems in the book, and they'd say, what can we do to help? And I was moved by that, that instead of saying, well, we can't do anything, we don't vote, we don't have any money, nobody listens to us, they all said, what can we do? And I love that. They never throw their hands up and go, eh. They never say, what are you going to do? They say, what are we going to do? So I wanted to write a book where a bunch of kids had a bunch of things going on, and they all said, what can we do? When she began writing about it, she didn't have the story totally figured out yet, but she knew some things. I knew that it was going to be a place, a secret place, an abandoned place that could use some transformation, and I knew that it was to be home to many children. Here in the Real World is about a boy named Ware and a girl named Jolene. Jolene is pretty tough, and things at home aren't great. The adult in her life has a drinking problem and doesn't exactly show up for her. Ware is socially awkward and doesn't fit in with his family. The children find themselves sharing an abandoned lot. Jolene grows a garden, while Ware builds a secret kingdom. The act of owning that lot and being there and working it and serving it 
becomes a bonding for them. So it heals them not only individually, but it bonds them too. Their friendship, which grows and strengthens them amid the ruins of the abandoned lot and the hard things in their lives, is similar to Mary and Colin. Like them, Ware and Jolene are really just looking for a sense of home. I had an experience where I worked in a school in California that had a 67% homelessness rate. And that moved me a lot. That really got me thinking about how it would be for kids, how it must be for kids who don't have a home. Now, these weren't all kids. In fact, most of them were not on the street. They were homeless in a different way. They were living in a motel or they were with staying with family kind of thing. Where and Jolene aren't living on the street either. They each have a home. Jolene's is much more tenuous, much more in danger because the adult in her life is not showing up. And she's actually threatened with the loss of a home. And so she's determined to take on the adult responsibility of paying for it. Ware's parents are trying to buy their rental, making his home even more secure. His problem is that he doesn't really feel welcome there. He has to take a stand and say, I belong here even though I'm not the kid you thought I would grow into. Even though I'm not a kid who reflects your values and your way in the world, I still belong here. You don't have to change me. Through his transformation, through his success at the lot, he has the strength to claim that home as his own in a sort of psychological way. It's kids claiming space, claiming their right to be who they are, asserting themselves. Here in the real world, the aboutness of it is that there are, here in the real world, a whole lot of problems. And there are a whole lot of ways to attempt to solve those problems. And that one of the ways is to visualize a different world. And that that is actually an important skill, to be able to see what the world could be, not what it is, because then it can be transformed. But it's also about how when kids who have a need When they have the space and the privacy to do it, great deeds can be done and friendships formed. And that there is something magical about a private, secret space that is all yours, that allows you to do things that you certainly couldn't do if other people were around. You sure couldn't do it if kind of guard adults are around. And you wouldn't do it if you didn't have a sense of total safety and privacy. Sarah says she didn't immediately realize how much her book tipped its hat to The Secret Garden. When I came back and read The Secret Garden afterward, I was really surprised at how much, how many other things from the original Secret Garden had made their way in. Like, I knew all the time that Jolene had flat blonde hair. It was not something, as an author, I was going to be able to say she had brown. I I wasn't able to do it because she was so clear in my mind. She also is kind of scrawny. She isn't sour, but she has a bit of an attitude. The books also deal with some pretty serious issues. In fact, all of the books we're talking about today do. The Secret Garden, Bridge to Terabithia, And here in the real world, there's death, grief, unimaginable loss, 
parental neglect and illness. I wondered if all of that wasn't too heavy for kids. But Sarah says kids are eager to fix problems, whether they're big or small. And books, they can really show them the way. I think that's what books can do for kids is show what you can do when you are confronted with something, whether it's a problem in your home or your interior life or your community or the world. Catherine Patterson agrees. I mean, they live in the world, don't they? I've often thought that books are good rehearsal for what we all have to meet in life, pain and grief and sorrow and, and things not going our way. I always feel sad when people say, well, I gave Bridget here, Bithia, to this child who just lost, you know, name one. And I think, oh, oh, too late. It should have come much sooner because it should have been a rehearsal for loss, not, not a pill that would cure it because it won't cure it, <laughs> uh, but it does help. That made me wonder, what's the secret garden a rehearsal for? Perhaps it's for that inevitable time when the world makes us cynical, when we become hopeless, jaded adults. It reminds us of that wonder we had as kids, of the wonder that's all around us. One of the strange things about living in the world is that it is only now and then one is quite sure one is going to live forever and ever and ever. One knows it sometimes when one gets up at the tender, solemn dawn time and goes out and stands alone and throws one's head far back and looks up and up and watches the pale sky slowly changing and flushing and marvellous unknown things happening until the east almost makes one cry out and one's heart stands still at the strange, unchanging majesty of the rising of the sun, which has been happening every morning for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. One knows it then for a moment or so. Special thanks to Sarah Pennypacker and Katherine Patterson. By the way, Katherine is involved with the National Children's Book and Literacy Alliance, which advocates for young people's need to read and develop special literacy projects. You can find more information at thencbla.org. That's thencbla.org. Use the website because you won't be sorry. For more about any of the books in this episode, visit harpercollins.com. The audiobook you heard throughout the show comes from Listening Library, an imprint of Penguin Random House Audio. If you love the podcast, let us know on Twitter at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D, ReadingPod. Or you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We feature them in our newsletter. Which, if you're not signed up for that, it's easy. Head on over to RememberReading.com where you can sign up to get episodes, quotes, trivia, and more delivered to your inbox every month. Remember Reading is produced by Irina Zhurov, and I'm Lindsay Jacobson. Until next time.